Coming up on Mayo Clinic Q&A. The cases that we're seeing now reflect what happened 14 to 30 days ago. News from the front lines of the COVID-19 outbreak. You're getting results back in about 45 to 60 minutes. Infectious disease expert Dr. Greg Poland shares his insight on social distancing. So we literally don't know, but I think the safest answer is to talk in terms of months, not weeks. New revelations about the virus. Once we don't see any cases, we wait 14 to 30 days. Question, what is Dr. Poland's best advice for you and your family at this point in the pandemic? You need to be able to take care of you and your family in your home for a minimum of 30 days. Do the logical things, take science into account as you look at your context, and take seriously those things and do them, and you'll do well. The answer next on Mayo Clinic Q&A. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Joining us by phone for another COVID-19 pandemic update is Mayo Clinic infectious disease and vaccine expert, Dr. Greg Poland. Dr. Poland, good to talk to you again. Thank you. Good to talk with you. We are recording this on Monday, March 23rd. Tell us what has changed over the weekend. Yeah, a number of interesting developments uh, that have occurred. One is that a company called uh, Cephid Uh, had a emergency use authorization approval from the FDA for what can essentially be closer to a point-of-care assay. It's still a molecular RT-PCR assay, but you're getting results back in about 45 to 60 minutes. What's helpful about it is that this particular company has about 5,000 of these machines deployed around the U.S. Now, they can only do a small number per hour, but it's one more thing we can use to meet the demand for testing. And those should be available midweek, I understand? That's my understanding, too. The other things that are of interest uh, are, number one, uh, a report out of China showing that as many as 50, 50 percent of patients may present with diarrhea as opposed to classical respiratory symptoms. Now, The key here is that this was only 200 patients, but importantly, if they presented with gastrointestinal symptoms, diarrhea, abdominal pain, vomiting, they had a worse prognosis. In other words, presenting with GI symptoms was a marker for increased severity of disease. And we thought for quite a while that diarrhea wasn't part of this, wasn't a usual symptom. You're right. Not a usual symptom, although in the initial reports coming out of China, about three to as many as 10 percent of patients were said to have diarrhea. Um, This is a a little different cohort they're looking at needs to be confirmed. Dr. Poland, this morning I read something about folks having trouble smelling or tasting. What do you know about that? Well, um, what we're hearing are anecdotal reports from uh, particularly in Britain from their ENT doctors there saying that they're seeing patients who have recovered from COVID-19 being left with loss of the ability to smell or taste, or at least diminish. Again, these are very early reports. They are a handful of pixels on an unfinished canvas, and we need to know more. But it's probably true that we need to add three things to our symptom list, diarrhea and loss of taste and smell, correct? 
Correct, although I think the latter two are probably uh, late in the course of the disease, not presenting symptoms. Okay. The other, the other thing that uh, has come up over the weekend, and, and we've talked a bit about it, but uh, MIT did a study looking at where are we seeing the burden of cases, and they're noticing that it's in a band of countries where the temperature currently varies between 37 degrees and 63 degrees, and they're seeing slower spread in warmer climates. Now, as they admit, that difference between colder countries and warmer countries is at best modest. But could it be a hint toward the idea that as we get to summertime, maybe this will dampen down? We have to stay tuned. Boy, we're hoping so. Uh, we also heard over the weekend that uh, hydroxychloroquine uh, or chloroquine and azithromycin, what we know as Zithromax or a Z-Pak, that the use of these medications in treating patients with COVID, COVID-19 could be a game changer. Do you agree? Um, I, I, I probably don't agree with that in this regard. What, what those statements are born on are some patients from France that appear to have gotten better concomitant with using that medication. And as we all know, until you do clinical trials, till you look in a more um, uh, fashioned way, are you really seeing natural history of disease in some people or are you actually seeing benefit from the medication? Having said that, there are several large clinical trials now in progress to examine that question and the question of various currently licensed antivirals. Is there a rationale for using chloroquine, zinc, and vitamin C to treat this disease? I don't, I don't know of any mechanism for zinc and vitamin C, but with Plaquenil or hydroxychloroquine, the idea there is that in the endosome of the cell, you're actually creating a more acidic environment, which is adverse to the ability of the virus to propagate itself. As of today, uh, in the United States, about 35,000 cases and approximately or close to 500 deaths. Is that about what you expected? Is that surprising? Is that less what than you expected? Uh, I think it's about what we're expecting based on what we've learned in other countries. You know, when you look at it, just on, on the 17th of March, we had 4,500 cases. Today, we are over 30,000 cases. This is doubling every couple of three days. And that's what we've seen in other countries, too. That's why the plead from public health authorities of shut things down now or we're going to see this continuing exponential increase in cases. So in your opinion, are we doing enough? I don't think so. I think um, as I've talked with colleagues around the U.S., uh, and, and my own observations uh, are there, there appear to be some people who haven't gotten the memo yet. Um, literally, you're having to have uh, uh, mayors and state governors make laws in order to get people to do the social distancing and to do the right thing. So many people ask me, because I get to talk to you, they want to know how long is this going to go on? And Will we know as lay people when we can see the number of active cases versus recovered cases? 
start to change? Is that we? I mean, we haven't hit a baseline yet, correct? Correct. And and here's the thing that's really hard for people to to do to to understand because they want to take what they see right now as predictive of the future. And that is not true with this virus. In other words, the cases that we're seeing now reflect what happened 14 to 30 days ago. What we don't want to do is make the mistake that I believe Japan is doing, where they see a decrease in cases and say, okay, all clear, kids back to school. That's not what we want to do. Once we don't see any cases, we wait 14 to 30 days to know that there are no more cases because you cannot tell at the same time. But once we don't see any cases, that is tied in with our testing. And because we are so far behind in our testing, it's going to be hard to know when that is, correct? Well, that's right. And and so, Casey, uh, Tracy, what you and I are talking about is cases. And so you're, you're putting your finger on exactly the right thing. Cases are people sick enough to come to medical attention or be tested. What we don't know is that big base of the pyramid of people who have little or no symptoms yet are in, uh, infected and can be infectious to others. You said you didn't think we were doing enough. What, what more should we be doing? I think that we need to shut down all non-essential activities. I understand that will be terribly disruptive economically, personally, mentally, socially, but we have no other tool with which to battle this virus. We do not have licensed antivirals. We do not have vaccines. And the, the issue, as every major city and uh, country is discovering, is that the mortality rate skyrockets when there is a surge demand that the medical system cannot meet. So by flattening that curve and spreading out infections, we can do what we do best, which is give superb 21st century medical care. But you can't do it when the system is literally overrun. So I do want to be able to say to people that are asking me, and I know if they're asking me, they're asking you tenfold, how long will this go on? Can we say today our best guess is fill in the blank, or is there no way to even say that? That, that is a prediction harder than predicting the weather. <laughs> um, and the reason for it is we have exactly 11 weeks experience with this virus. So we literally don't know. But I think the safest answer is to talk in terms of months, okay. not weeks. This uh, virus seems to be particularly stressful for people, and I know there are multiple reasons for that, uh, because we've never seen it before, mostly, and we don't know how long it's going to last. Uh, do you have some tips for controlling anxiety and stress because of this social distancing and this isolation? Yeah, I, I think a couple of things. First, to frame it, uh, we are really the first generation that has not faced uh, war, famine, pandemics the way they have in previous generations. So this is new to us. But I think the first thing is, let's look to history. People have been through these things before. They have pulled together, and that's a key, switching from me to we, 
and they have done well when they've done that. The other thing I think worth remembering is technology. We have technology, connections, wealth, beyond imagination from previous generations. I actually think the youngest among us will weather this better than the rest of us. They are, and I'm simplifying of course, but they're used to coming home from school, for example, and playing video games and doing so remotely with their friends. There's no disruption in that. Um, so I think those are our key things. I think getting outside is really important. An interesting observation here. The streets are dark at night. There's no cars at 10, 1030. And people were out riding on the busiest roads in the middle of the road on their bicycles, maintaining six to 10 feet apart from each other. I thought that was glorious. Good for you. <laughs> I, I think getting outside into nature and creation turns out to be something really helpful in terms of your mindset. And uh, what I have noticed is that people are much more civil to each other. They say hello, they nod their head, they stay a respectful distance away but want to talk. Uh, and I think those are all really, really good things to do. I'd like to talk about testing for a moment. As of Monday the 23rd, do we have enough test kits or where are we at in that quest? I, I think we are rapidly ramping up to have enough test kit. Some organizations that are really large producers of these are saying they're, they're now going to be able to get out millions a week. The question will be the personnel and the machinery to run these. What we really need, Tracy, is what's called a point-of-care assay that's rapid, the same way we do with influenza. Now, that helps us to understand the denominator, but if people are otherwise well or have minimal symptoms, whether they test positive or not, in terms of their individual health, doesn't matter because they're going to go home and recover just fine from their infection. Where it helps is knowing something about community transmission and protecting those around you from the infection. And that's why it's important. So that's why the mass testing is so important. That's why having the tests available is so important. Exactly. Okay. And that should be this coming week. Yes. Well, that's, those, those are what the indicators are. All right. We could never talk enough about prevention. So uh, remind us again, who is at particular risk for this disease and the, the most important things we can do to prevent it? Yeah. You know, I, I think to the list of things like smokers, people who are very obese, who have cardiovascular or lung disease and older people, we need to add healthcare workers. When you look um, at uh, Italy, for example, uh, 10 to 20 percent of their cases are healthcare workers. Hmm. So these are very brave people who in the face of a pandemic like this and without adequate personal protective equipment are still there in the battle trying to do their very best for patients. So, so one plea is healthcare uh, brothers and sisters in medicine and, and nursing, take good care of yourself. How do you do that? One is using your personal protective equipment appropriately. I think when, to the extent manpower allows, when you don and doff your protective equipment, you do it with a colleague watching you so you don't make a mistake. You go into the room with somebody so you don't make a mistake. I wanna emphasize again 
what is obvious and simple but has profound implications. There's nothing particularly exotic about this virus. You cannot be infected if you don't breathe the virus in or touch a contaminated surface and then touch your eyes, nose, or mouth. So knowing that, what do you have to do in your particular context to avoid breathing the virus in and to regularly sanitize your hands so you don't infect yourself? All right, let's talk about some uh, common misperceptions uh, about this virus. And the first one I want to ask you about is the I generation. That's the kids between 18 and 25 years old and the millennials aren't at risk. Yeah, I I heard a terrible joke about this, um, (laughs) about, you know, kids coming home and living in the basement, wondering how do they get to live up on the upper floors? And they're calling them (laughs) boomer removers. (laughs) Terrible. Um, But but I would caution them a couple of things. The first twenty five hundred cases that were hospitalized here in the United States, 40 percent of those patients were between the ages of 20 and 54. Yeah, interesting. Um, You may have heard the case of a 34 or 32-year-old retired gold medal Olympic swimmer who says he has never experienced anything like this. It has whacked him so hard. And I think people need to realize that. They, They have the misperception that, oh, it'll be like a little cold. For some of them, yes, they're right. But they can also spread it to the people they love, to their neighbors, to their friends. And so they need to take the same kind of precautions in terms of respiratory etiquette, social distancing, and hand washing as all of us need to. Are males and females equally affected? Well, what we can say is that they are differentially affected in terms of severity. It has indeed been the case that in virtually every country I'm aware of, men have had more severe disease and have had mortality rates higher than women. Some of that may relate to what we know is a a positive genetic predisposition for women to survive infections. The other thing is men tend to engage in riskier behaviors, including, for example, smoking. Uh, which is a major risk factor for complicated disease here. You know, thanks for all the great information uh, every time we talk to you. And we always like to ask as we finish up, what is your best advice for people and their families at this point in time in the epidemic? Pandemic? I, I really think that what people have to do is seriously assess their context if you have a immunocompromised child or other uh, family member, you have to take precautions that are much more restrictive, if you will, than say in, in my family. So I think you cannot be strict enough about social distancing, hand washing, and respiratory etiquette. And I think the other thing is ever since 9-11, The CDC has told America, because of natural disasters, pandemics, whatever it would be, you need to be able to take care of you and your family in your home for a minimum of 30 days. Now, that's not to be panicked. It's to say, be prepared. Do the logical things. Take take, uh, science into uh, account as you look at your context and take seriously those things and do them and you'll do well. 
Do we know if we uh, have been infected and recover, are you immune? Is that immunity level there? Have we found out that information? That's a really good question, you guys. And here's what we can say. Um, with the seasonal coronaviruses that regularly circulate, that immunity lasts in terms of months to a year or two. Will that be true with this? Again, we only have 11 weeks experience, but the concern is based on what we know about coronaviruses, so these are human beta coronaviruses, immunity seems to not be long-lived. Okay. Will that turn out to be true with this virus? Could you get infected again if it, say, circulates again next year? Just don't know yet. We'll have a vaccine by then, won't we, doctor? I'm uh, I'm hoping, but you know, uh, think of another public health emergency, Ebola. That took six years. Dr. Greg Poland, infectious disease specialist, vaccine expert from the Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much again for being with us. My pleasure. Mayo Clinic Q&A is a production of Mayo Clinic News Network and is available wherever you get and subscribe to your favorite podcasts. To see a list of all Mayo Clinic Q&A podcasts, visit newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Then click podcasts. Thanks for listening and be well. We hope you'll offer a review of this and other episodes when the option is available. Comments and questions can also be sent to Mayo Clinic News Network at mayo.edu.